0: Good evening, church family. It was good. Thank you, Donovan. We are closing our series tonight, um, our teaching series from Romans chapter eight. We made it all the way to point number, or I should say, part number nine, and we have been positioning Romans chapter eight over and over, week after week, before you as our overall theme, meaning the life of a Christian is a new life. You know, in Christianity, we have a changed life, a modified life, a different life, a better life. But the predominant theme we see in Scripture is that in Christianity, you get a new life. Now, the newness of the Christian life is not found in some mystical, out-of-body experience or some internal combustion that all of a sudden everything is totally different. But rather, we've been arguing week after week uh, from Romans chapter 8 that the new life that we have in Jesus Christ is found when you and I continue to become aware of the ultimate realities, the truths that are now present because of the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. There are new truths now in the world that are revealed to us in Scripture that have come to us that are reality. And as we learn them, as we know them, and we respond to them, you and I then become new people. And tonight we're going to close in summary fashion, like Paul is going to close us in summary fashion in Romans chapter 8, that great portion of scripture that teaches us about the, the magnificent love of God, with an ultimate reality of this, that the gospel now gives us a completely new kind of confidence. Confidence. That the gospel of Jesus, the death, The burial, the resurrection, ascension, and now intercession of Jesus can give to a person here in this life a confidence that they have never had before, that they've never experienced. So, to get started into this, as we're going to break down the text in just a moment, but to get started, we've got to ask a few questions like, you know, first of all, what is confidence? You know, what does it mean when I say having confidence? That word has been used and applied to different spirits, different attitudes that don't necessarily always mean the idea of confidence. Sometimes we apply confidence to things like arrogance or being um, boastful or prideful. The word confidence just really actually means assurance, solid assurance of heart and mind that you are a person who is secure, that you're okay, that you are a person that is accepted and good, and that you are a person that's capable able to do something and I believe God longs for us to have what he would call a healthy or a godly confidence but the problem is sin like all of our other problems has not just um, changed the way we do confidence but broken us away from the source of all healthy confidence the love of God as we'll see uh, here in just a few moments so because of that, because we all have exalted ourselves through the act of sin, and the belief of sin, that we can run our lives better than God can run our lives, that we should trust ourselves more than we trust God and therefore live lives of sin, we have broken off our connection to the very thing, the very being that is supposed to give us ultimate confidence, security. And so therefore, all of us as human beings lost at times in sin have settled For lesser ways to replace this lost confidence we had in God's love. So a second important question for you to try to make the most of this text tonight is this. You know, what really gives you in your life right now confidence? What gives you security? What makes you feel most okay? Maybe a better question might be, do you have confidence? Or do you exist day to day lost without confidence? Both of those cases are not supposed to be the way we live. Um, Do people give you confidence? Affirming you, uh, maybe praising you, maybe being connected with you? Is it your accomplishments, the things that you've done that assure you that you're able to do things so you have confidence? Is it maybe habits in your life that reinforce some things that give you confidence? You know, uh, I'll I'll try to summarize it this way. I, I did a lot of research on looking into... Um, you know how people in the world counsel us to get confidence again like last week I shared with you some Google stats Uh, you can look up on Google how to build confidence and there are a lot of people that are experts on how how to help human beings live lives of confidence and it's important to people you know whether it's in the business world or in the educational sector um, people believe we should live lives with confidence and so I started to research all the ways that all these outlets were telling us here's how you get confidence and you could boil it down into about three main categories where we have draw draw our confidence from uh, that will ultimately end up finding out that these are broken cisterns Uh, we get our confidence horizontally from people we get our confidence individually from ourselves and at times we even get our confidence circumstantially from things that are happening in our lives and you're gonna find as I give you a few examples that most of these things are not bad things. Most of these things that we draw our confidence from when we're not drawing it from God are not terrible or bad things. In fact, many of them are good things, but these were things that were never designed by God for us to build our lives upon, for us to have all of our stability come from them. In fact, they're way too flimsy, they're way too weak to be able to sustain a person's life. Let me run you through a few examples. First of all, circumstantial supply of confidence. These are when right things happen to us, then I feel confident. For example, something like, um, I'm in high school and I apply to a few colleges, and I get into the right school. I get to go to the school that I want to go to, and so because I was accepted into the school, I begin to feel more confident. That's a good thing to get accepted into a school, and that should give you some sense of accomplishment, but it doesn't have the capacity to give you fullness of confidence. Or maybe you get the right job or the right person notices you and the right person asks you to the right dance or the right person asks you to spend the rest of their lives together. And, and the right circumstances happen and so therefore you have uh, confidence. Maybe it's your financial status or the house that you're able to buy or the place that you're able to secure. All these things are circumstances. Circumstances. And the problem with drawing our life's stability and confidence from circumstances is... They don't always go the way that we want them to go. We might not get into the school that we wanted to get into. We might not get the right relationship or it might go sour. We might have relationships fall apart or a job not come through. And these circumstances, while good, were never designed to give your life stability and confidence. So what about individual? This is another one. Um, I was reading this one article about how to build confidence. And here was the list that people gave you. Of things you should start doing if you want to build confidence if you don't have any Uh, one, you should start working out it's a great idea exercise, uh, post-exercise if you start to see maybe some body changes after several weeks that's going to build confidence in your life it's a good thing the second thing was either dress better or find a friend that can help you shop for clothes (laughs) I thought that was good but it's interesting, right? dress better ready for the third one? Smell better. No, I'm being serious. There was um, the International Society of Cosmetic Sciences. That's a real thing. (laughs) Put out in their journal that um, men who were, uh, they they did a study where they took, uh, like I think, 250 men and they uh, gave half of them access to cologne, where they put cologne on, and the other half didn't have access. And the men who put cologne on, and they took portraits of them, Um, portrayed themselves in ways that were like, you know, they were much more confident. So just changing the smell for the men, they all of a sudden, they started like their shoulders were back farther. They they lifted their chins up a little bit, but they felt a little bit like more proud and confident. So literally changing your aroma has the capacity to give you more confidence. Uh, If that doesn't work, you can, as one article told me, um, you can adjust your pose, your posture. Literally, change your physical posture. In fact, there was a research study done at the Ohio State University that said, um, if you will just uh, lift your hands like in a victory, uh, you know, putting your hands up and clench your fists, it has the ability to raise your testosterone, therefore raising your confidence. So if you're struggling in confidence, just start walking around like this, you know, in the office. Yeah, people will just start, you know, whoa, okay, this guy's really confident. That'll work. Listen to this. These are all really things people are reading, like online, right now, how do I get confident if I'm not? Main media outlets. This is an interesting one. This is where you can draw from yourself. Explain something to somebody that you understand really well. That'll make you feel better about yourself. So you find somebody that is willing to listen to you, and you get a subject that you know a lot about you know, like maybe the delivery routes of the UPS trucks or something. You just totally understand how that works, why it takes three days for a package to go from Columbus to Cincinnati, but two from Columbus to Georgia. You know, maybe you can explain all that and you just find somebody to listen to you and you tell them all about it and that will build your confidence. And the article actually told me that if you don't have friends, find an online forum where you can tell people online something you know about. That's going to build your confidence. Interesting, right? The last advice for individuals said this. Just find something in your life you don't like and fix it. Just fix it. Do you see what all those things have in common? It's from inside of yourself, produce confidence. Psychologists would call this self-esteem. And if you spend any time with somebody who struggles with self-esteem, you'll know that someone who struggles with self-producing esteem doesn't have the capacity in themselves to produce esteem. That's not how it works. Something outside of you has to affirm you and build you up. Does that make sense? Okay, the last one is horizontal. This is when you feel better about yourself in comparison to others. So this was actually, a, a, I promise you, this was a piece of advice from one of the articles I read. It said, if you want to build comp- confidence, you should enter yourself into competitions and in the ones that you know that you will win. And, and, and so... Basically, find people that are less athletic or less talented or have less ability than you. And in comparison to them failing and you doing better, you will build in yourself confidence. It reminded me of uh, several years ago, Clay took us all down to Barnesville to run a race, a 5K race, probably three or four years ago. Now, I had been running a lot at that time, and I I was ready to go. And Clay assured me that this was just a casual, friendly family outing where people would just be jogging. And so I was like, all right. I'm going to bring back the old shoes. I'm going to do really well. And I show up thinking I'm going to do great. And I take off out of there. And I ran really, I thought fast. You know, I ran something like 19 minutes in this 5K. I was super excited. And Clay didn't tell me that there was going to be a kid that just graduated high school. as a state qualifier runs 17 minutes. Beat me by, he just smoked me on this race. And what's funny about that is, um, you see, if we just always are searching for somebody to be less than us, we're we're, we're susceptible to somebody being better. Confidence that is born out of comparison is not confidence. Confidence born out of comparison is arrogance. Always requiring somebody to be less than you. And the problem with this is your only options are I'm above people or I'm below people. I'm never stable. So do you see how the system that our world is telling us how to get confidence is literally broken. It doesn't work. All of these things can fall apart in a blink of an eye. It's broken. There is a better confidence available and that's found in God's love. And notice quickly in uh, Romans chapter 8, it breaks down pretty simply in three ways. We see the supremacy of God's love, the supply of God's love, and the stability brought to the believer. So let's do verses 31 and 32 quickly. He says, here's the supremacy of God's love. And Paul's going to, what he's going to do here at the end of chapter 8 in Romans is argue with you a little bit. He's going to argue with you about the truths of the gospel to hold us accountable to our beliefs. Here's what he says in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? Now, what things, Paul? This would be all the things that he has been listing in chapter 8, like if you are in Christ, there's no condemnation God has done for us what we through the law could not do because we were weak in our flesh, that we are joint heirs with God through Christ, with Christ and God, that we are now children of God, that we have the Holy Spirit who is interceding and helping with us in our weaknesses, and that we have been predestined to become like Jesus Christ. And so Paul says, what should we say to all of these amazing things? And here's his conclusion, here's his argument, verse 31. If God is for us, who could be against us? Who could be against us? There is nothing that you and I can get confidence from or put our confidence in that has this kind of power, yet also this kind of motivation for us. Because not only is he God, who, if God is for us, who can be against us, what Paul is saying is that there's not a greater being in the world than God, the sovereign creator of the universe. And if that being is for you, there's nothing. There's not a job, there's not a person, there's not a circumstance that is greater than God. And if that being is for you, who in the world could be against you? Who? What he's trying to do is reestablish your understanding of priority, reestablish your understanding of ranking that there's not a circumstance, not a person, not even a thing you can do of your own self that is greater than the being of God. And if that being is sold out for you, who can be against you? There's not a greater power. But there's also not a greater motive. Look how he explains this power coming to your life in verse 32. He, God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You see, what he's arguing is that there's not a greater power in the world, but there's not a greater motive than God's. Completely selfless, sacrificial. If he wouldn't spare his very own son to bring to you exactly what you need, when we step back and observe that, we say, okay, what will he not do for us? What would he not be willing to do for us, to go to bat for us? If he is the greatest power in the world and the greatest thing at his disposal, he was willing to give for us selflessly so that we might be reconnected and reconciled to him. He's arguing with you, and you got to argue back and say, okay, what would he withhold? There's not a greater being, and there's not a greater motive. And God's love for us is supreme because it's greater than all the things that you and I could ever try to get our confidence from. Now let's move into how he brings it to us. So that's the supremacy of God's love. Let's talk about how he brings it to us. What Paul does to explain how this comes into our lives, how we really begin to receive this confidence, is he walks us through three rhetorical questions. He's going to, again, argue with you a little bit. And these three questions get to the heart of of why humans lose their confidence. He argues the uh, question about being accused, you know, being someone bringing a charge against us, being, being ridiculed. He argues the question about being condemned when we actually do fail or we are wrong. And he argues the question from being cast off or sent out. Look at the first one in verse 33. He says, Who shall bring a charge against God's people, God's elect? You see, he's bringing you this beautiful question to ask you to think about. God, the greatest being, through the greatest motive, has decided to extend to you a love that is beyond anything you could understand. And he says, Who, in verse 33, shall bring a charge against God's elect? Now, to bring a charge means to call somebody into question, to raise doubts about somebody, to accuse somebody with certainty that they are unfit or unable. Now, this experience can be incredibly disheartening. Just think about that. You might not even be wrong. You might not even be proven wrong. But if somebody just raises doubts about you, somebody just questions your ability, somebody questions your motive, somebody questions your presence, if somebody's just like, what's he doing here? What's she doing here? Or somebody says, they're not able to, excuse me, do that, or let's not trust that person. Just the raising of doubts about you can be wounding to our confidence, can damage us. But here's what he says in verse 34. <clears throat> I'm sorry, yeah, into verse 33. It is God who justifies. You see, he's reestablishing for you that even in moments of time where we experience accusation. Maybe being overlooked, maybe being charged with a wrong, maybe being doubted, maybe being ridiculed, whatever it may be. When you experience that, what he's trying to reestablish is the higher source that should give you stability. He says, okay, who can really bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who does the justifying. That word justifying in the Bible means to be declared right. We talked a lot about that last week. The biblical definition of justification means to be looked at and said, who you are, what you are, is right and good. And if it's God who is the one who gives justification, who says you're justified, if you value what He says, if you hold His opinion supreme above all other opinions, when somebody comes along and says, you're unfit, what are you doing here? You probably can't do that. That opinion is below the opinion of God. And it lacks the ability to wreck your confidence. Now, the second question is this in verse 34. Who is, there, or, Who is to condemn? This is actually to bring um, an actual judgment down. So maybe something you've done is wrong. Maybe you fail. Maybe you don't live up to the standards of an employer, the standards of a friend, the standards of a spouse, the standards of your own self, where condemnation a lot of times comes from ourself the truth that he fights us with is found in the next part when he brings us right directly to Jesus Christ who is there to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised who is at the right hand of God who is interceding for us Do you see what he's doing he doesn't really even begin to explain all the gospel he just tells you the gospel it was Christ Jesus who died Well, why did he die for our sins, to absorb the wrath of God under our condemnation. More than that, he was raised, so it wasn't just the final answer of Jesus wasn't just his condemnation, but he was raised back to life. And after raised back to life, he was ascended to the Father, and he's now currently interceding for us, meaning arguing our case for us before God, saying he or she is one of mine. And so who really has the power to condemn you? Who has the power to bring a charge against you to condemn you to bring judgment to you he's saying no one does no one has the power to condemn so just imagine living your life with such confidence such peaceful security that you don't always have to run around defending yourself when you're wrong but you also don't have to run around promoting yourself when you've been overlooked you don't have to do that you can just rest in the acceptance and reconciliation of Jesus Christ, and realize that it is God's acceptance and God's rejection that's ultimate, and He's accepted me in Jesus. I don't have to worry about being condemned. And the last one is this, um, down in verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of God, from, from the love of Christ? You know, one of the most gut-wrenching experiences in life is to be left out of something you long to be a part of. To see something that you want to partake in, to participate in, and to be left out of that is gut-wrenching. Paul says even the most difficult things are suffering, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, a sword. The most difficult suffering does not mean that you are left out of the ultimate gift of God's love. That's, it's so amazing how Satan can be so effective at this that the moment we experience some measure of suffering, some measure of difficulty, the first question that we oftentimes have to wrestle with is, is God here and does God care? Almost immediately, Satan is masterful at the way that he argues that with people. The moment people suffer, almost automatically, we've got to fight back saying, yes, God is present, and yes, God does care, even in the midst of the suffering. We'll see why. You see, verse 37, he says, "It's not." look down at verse 37 with me. After he says, it's not all those things that tribulation or distress, they can't separate you from God's love. Verse 37 says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. You notice he says, it's not in spite of our suffering, or around our suffering, or even though there's suffering going on, we can still know we're loved over here. What he says is actually through this, in the suffering, we learn to conquer Satan. Through God's love. Our suffering, when rightly understood, when rightly um, put in the right position with who God is, only has the ability to amplify God's love for us. It reminds us, as we suffer in this life, through circumstantial ways, through things that are created, as it will say in just a moment verse 39, that there are created things that can cause us to suffer, but these created things cannot separate us from God's love. It's in the suffering that we are reminded... Of the eternality and and the, the foreverness of God's love. So when you suffer, you're reminded that circumstances, that people, and yes, even yourself do not have the ability to give you a sustaining love. It reminds you of that. God is gracious enough to let us go through that so that we can develop a deeper confidence born out of His love. Let's finish with the last two verses here the stability for the believer. When someone really understands what Paul is arguing and really gets the facts of what he's driving into us here, the truths of who Jesus is, which gives us the supremacy of God's love and brings us the supply of His love, we begin to experience what the Bible calls stability. Um, Paul says it this way in verse 38. The ESV translated, translates it this way, that I am sure, for I am sure. Uh, you might have from the New King James the word persuaded. Persuaded. Um, I am persuaded. Uh, That's probably a really great translation of that word, persuaded. What it means is I am convinced. It actually has its roots in the word faith. It has its roots in the word faith. So when Paul says that um, I am sure, or your Bible might say I am persuaded, what Paul is dealing with is the roots of faith. And here what we see is the workings of faith or what I like to call the guts of our faith. You see, when we hit moments of whether it be suffering or failing or dealing with accusations or even condemnation, when the weight of Satan's accusations, condemnation, and separation come into us, and we're wondering if we're loved by God and we're losing that confidence, you and I have a choice in those moments. Our choice is to be tossed to and fro by these lies that Satan spins to us, that make us accused, condemned, and cast off, or to have the guts, the confidence, the security to choose to believe the truth of the gospel, even when we don't feel like it. You see, your faith is not your feelings. Faith is not feelings. Feelings and faith are not the same thing. And we get them so intertwined in our um, world today where we think our feelings are our faith. You might wake up tomorrow and not feel it. Okay, that's possible. But that not feeling it is not the same thing as your faith. You can let your feelings wreck your faith, but your feelings are not your faith. Your faith is the certainty by which you looked at the evidence and say, I believe that Jesus Christ was the Son of God, died on the cross for my sins buried to take my sins away, rose from that grave victorious, so I know I can resurrect someday, but I can even resurrect now from a life of sin. And I believe that he has ascended to heaven to intercede for me. That has nothing to do with how I feel. Nothing. It has everything to do with what I believe. And in those moments when you feel shipwrecked, when, when the gray cloud that you know, goes over Charlie Brown comes over your life, you have a choice. By faith to remember what you believe or to be tossed by your feelings. Feelings are not faith. Faith are the beliefs you hold regardless, regardless of how you feel. You see, I believe this passage, especially at the end here, I think Paul in verses 38 and 39 is giving us insight into his personal, devotional quiet time with himself. I think what we're getting is Paul, the way that he preaches the gospel to himself when he says, I am persuaded. I am. That neither death nor life, he had his life threatened oftentimes. Angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate, I think Paul said oftentimes, me from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, I think this is what Paul preached to himself over and over when his sin and his failings and his shortcomings were fresh on his mind. He experienced that often. You see, I think he experienced oftentimes moments when he was down. He would probably say to him, Paul, I know you're remembering all the people that you hurt, all the people that you shipwrecked, all the people that were Christians that you dismantled. You've done awful things, Paul. You deserve probably the worst punishment. But Paul would say to himself, now get it together. I am convinced. I am persuaded. I am sure because of the reality of Jesus, not my goodness, that nothing, Nothing will separate me from God's love. That's what Paul said to himself. In the moments when he didn't feel it, he said what was true. You see, to let Satan convince you of anything else that you can be separated from God's love is to live out a lie. I know this is hard. This is difficult. Um, I know it's challenging for us to do this. To not believe the lies that we tell ourselves, that we listen to so often, We hear things we say to ourselves in our minds so often, things like, I've messed up, I've ruined relationships, I've wasted money, I've offended friends, I've sent a nasty email, I've raised my voice, I've told lies, I've harbored bitterness, I forget to read my Bible, I don't pray enough, we say all these things. And in those moments, God is trying to come to us again and say, yes, yes, you've messed up a lot. You've made a lot of mistakes. But those don't have the power to separate you from my love. Come back here. Get in here. What Satan wants us to do in the moments of those mess-ups is run from the love of God, not run to it. And I'm convinced that if you're ever going to find stability in this life, not be tossed by your emotions, but find stability, and have the power to move out of your sins, whatever they are, it won't be because you all of a sudden just get awesome one day. All of a sudden you just wake up on a Tuesday and you're like, you know what? 13 years I've been struggling and been down. I'm like this, an emotional roller coaster. And I'm just going to, today's the day, Tuesday, and all of a sudden I get awesome. It's not going to happen. I promise. You're not going to wake up one day and just be awesome at spiritual life. The only way that you're going to find stability and move out of sin is when you give in to letting yourself be fully loved by the creator of this world. That's it. When you let yourself be loved by God, in spite of all your weaknesses, in light of all your failings, all that does is amplify how much God loves you and reinforces the truth that should give you stability and motivate you to the power to say, I don't want sin anymore. That bitterness, let it go. Those lies, they're not helping me raising my voice, getting angry, trying to control my whole world, it's not doing me any good. This God who has loved me in light of all of my sin, I could probably trust Him. Now that sounds like confidence, doesn't it? Stability. To be able to move into your life, to live the new life in Christ that you were always supposed to live. God has always wanted us to have full-fledged relationship with Him, to be in union with Him, fellowship with Him. And what Paul has done for you, I hope that it's been a blessing to you from Romans chapter 8, is walk you through how you can learn those realities in Christ, respond to them, and have this new life, the life that you were always supposed to have in Jesus. If, you, that's, not a life you, if that's a life you don't have, as always, we're here to help you with that. We'll stand and sing. You can come now or come anytime.